right, we're going to start. Let's go ahead and start up while pe people are making their way in. I wrote down the three questions I was going to answer, and the first one is, how can Jesus be the only way? And autocorrect changed it, and I looked down and it said, how can cheese be the only way? I was like, okay, that's definitely not the question we're going to answer. Well, my name is Sean McDowell. I'm a professor of apologetics at Biola University. Now, very quickly, apologetics sounds fancy, but in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready with an answer for the hope within, and give it with gentleness, and give it with respect. The word for answer that we're to be ready with an answer in the Greek is apologia, which is translated apologetics. So part of our call as Christians, not just professors or pastors, is to be ready with an answer. And I've been doing apologetics longer than most of you are alive, and I only say that to indicate to you that Christianity actually makes sense, and there's good reasons that the Bible's true, that Jesus is God, that God is the creator. We can't get into all of that, but as Christians, we invite questions. We're okay with doubt. God is big enough to take our questions, and what I've found is if we seek answers, there's good answers. So three of the big questions that have come up, I'm just going to go about three, four minutes on this, and then we'll open it up for what questions you have. So be thinking in the back of your mind, what are the toughest questions you have? And then you can shoot your hand up and just think, how do you state that question quickly to the point? And then I'll do my best to help. So how can we say Jesus is the only way? So recently I was talking with a young man about this, and he looked at me and he goes, how can you say Jesus is the only way? And I looked at him, I said, actually, I'm not saying that. Jesus is the one who said that. Take it up with him. Now, what's my point in that response? Do I have the credentials as a human being to say who gets into heaven and who doesn't? The answer is no. Who has the credentials to make a pronouncement like that? Now, before you answer that question, if I said this afternoon I'm going to lead an NFL quarterback free session for those of you who want to play in the NFL, I'm going to help you make it and be a quarterback. Guess what? None of you should show up. I wasn't an NFL quarterback. I don't have a clue how to tell you how to do so. Now, if Philip Rivers shows up or Tom Brady shows up, they have the credentials, go listen to them. So who has the credentials to talk about eternal life? Who has the credentials to talk about salvation and how we get to God? Well, what's unique about Jesus amongst all great religious leaders is he didn't just tell us how to find God or how to find truth. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be truth. He fulfilled prophecy. He lived a sinless life. He performed miracles such as walking on water, raising the dead, healing the blind. And ultimately in John 2, he said, I'm going to destroy this temple, his body, and in three days, I'm going to rise it from the dead. Jesus has credentials more than anybody who's ever lived to talk about eternal life. He has more credentials to talk about heaven than Tom Brady does to talk about basketball, or of course, certainly basketball, or Tom Brady does football, or Stephen Curry does to talk about basketball. So if Jesus really rose from the grave with the sinless life and performed miracles, then don't you think we should take heed to what Jesus says about salvation? I think we should. 
Now, by the way, with that said, it's not only Christians who claim to have the only way to get to God. Muslims do. Buddhists say they're right, and you're wrong. Hindus say they're right, and you're wrong. Atheists say they're right, and you're wrong. The nature of having a view is you think you're right, and everybody else is wrong. So this isn't unique to Christians. We all have a certain view that we think is true. What I think is different about Christianity is at the heart of it, we have Jesus. Again, sinless life, born of a virgin, performed miracles, rose on the third day. That gives me pause and says, maybe I should listen to this person about salvation. Now, one more point before we move to the second question is this. Why is Jesus the only way? This is so important to understand this. Are you ready? Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. Let me say it again. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he's the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. Look, if your car runs out of gas, does it do any good to rotate the tires? No. Does it do any good to get new spark plugs? No. How about change the air filter? No, you got to identify the problem and do what? And fix it. Well, Jesus is the one who identified the problem. The problem is sin. God is holy in his character. And you and I all know we've said stuff and done stuff that is wrong, which is why at times we felt guilty and needed forgiveness. That separates us from God. Jesus is the only one who is the God-man who paid the debt for us that we couldn't pay. So Jesus is the only one because he's the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. You might have further questions about that. We can come back to that during the Q&A if you want to. Let's shift to the second question. How can a Christian think about the transgender movement? First off, here's something very important. We absolutely unmistakably must approach this with kindness and love and graciousness for people who are wrestling with their gender identity. Sometimes we as Christians have turned this into a culture war about bathroom wars, us against the trans community. That is not the way of Jesus. We must reach out with kindness. We must reach out with grace. We must reach out with a heart to love people the way that Jesus loved people. So with that said, the question is, how did Jesus love people? And how should we think about gender, biblically speaking? I think the Bible teaches three things. If you want to write this down, it might be helpful. Three things. Number one is that our biological sex is an essential part of who we are. God has made us as sexed beings. God has made us as sexed beings. What do we mean by this? You go back to the beginning in Genesis, what does it say? It says God made them what? Male and female, both in his image. He made us male and female. Now what that means is God could have made us asexual. God could have made three sexes. He could have created us however he wanted to. But he made us as essentially sexed beings. So there's certain things about you that are not essential to who you are. For example, your intelligence, 
Your intelligence doesn't define who you are. Your income doesn't define who you are. Your height doesn't define who you are. Those things can change, right? And you still remain you. But God has made us as male and female. So step number one in the scriptures is that God, who is the creator who made everything, chose to make human beings as sexed beings. That's step number one. Step number two is that scripture teaches that God desires that our gender identity match up with our biological sex. Scripture seems to indicate that since we are sexed beings, we are to live in a way consistent with our biological nature. Does that make sense? So there's a passage in Deuteronomy that talks about a man should not wear woman's cloak and a woman should not wear a man's garment. Why? Partly because God designed us to live that our gender identity matches our biological sex. We see marriage, for example, in Matthew 19. Jesus defines marriage as a sexed institution, that it's one man and one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. Now, let me stop for a second before we get to point three. Why would God care that our gender identity match up with our biological sex? And the answer is because we are embodied souls. What does that mean? If you ask the question what it means to be human, it means you are body and soul, or both. You're not a soul that just has a body. Our bodies are a part of who we are. Now, if you don't believe me, I somewhat apologize for using this example, but bear with me. The recent drama at the Academy Awards with Chris Rock and Will Smith. Notice, okay, when Will Smith decided to slap Chris Rock. Chris Rock, as far as I know, has chosen not to sue him. He didn't, if he would, he wouldn't sue him for property damage, right? How do people say? They say Will Smith hit who? Chris Rock. He hit his body, which is a part of who he is. Isn't this the common sense way we talk? If someone pushes you, you say, you pushed me because our bodies are a part of who we are. That's why in Romans, Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then it says, offer your bodies to the Lord because your body is a part of who you are. So step number one, God has made us essentially sexed beings. Step number two, God desires that our identity, our gender identity, match up with our biological sex because we are embodied souls. Our bodies are a part of who we are. But third, are you ready? The Bible doesn't give specifics about exactly how to express our gender. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly cross-culturally how to fulfill number two. So let me ask you a question. Can a man wear a skirt? Yeah, he can. That's true. There you go, Scotland. In my roots, my last name is McDowell. I sat next to a guy on the plane one time. He goes, he had this accent. And I go, hey, I'm, you know, I've got Scottish roots. I'm Sean McDowell. He goes, no, you're not. I was like, uh, I'm pretty sure I know who I am. He goes, it's not Sean McDowell. 
it's Sean McDool. I was like, okay, I guess you're from Scotland. You would know. But in Scotland, it's appropriate to wear a kilt. That's one masculine expression. Can guys wear a dress? I don't know if you've ever been to Fiji, but guys will wear a wrap. You actually wrap it around, and it looks like you're wearing a dress. So here's the point. Please hear me on this. Is that God has made us as sex beings, and he wants our gender identity to match up with our biological sex. But he doesn't give us specifics exactly what this looks like. Okay? There's some flexibility there, so to speak. But the problem is, is we take certain cultural stereotypes and put them upon people. And then people who don't fit those stereotypes feel like they're not masculine or feminine. Does that make sense? So, for example, you tell me, give me an example of a manly man in the Bible. Go. Samson and David, always the first two people give me. You know who people never respond and say? Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Somehow we have this idea that maybe Jesus was a little feminine according to our stereotypes. Now, David was a manly man when he did what? He killed Goliath, chopped off his head. You know what else David did? He wrote poetry, and he, wrote, he played a harp. There's no indication in the Bible that he was manly when he killed Goliath, but acting a little girly or feminine when he played the harp and wrote poetry. There's no breakdown there. You know, Jesus is manly. It describes in Revelation he comes with a sword in his mouth. He's a judge. He's a warrior. But Jesus also wept. You know, Jake, you know the story of Jacob and Esau? Who's more manly, Jacob or Esau, according to our stereotypes? Esau, why? He's hairy, right? And what else? And he's a hunter. A hairy hunter, that's the image of masculinity according to our stereotypes. And Jacob was a homeboy favored by his mom. Who did God choose, by the way? Jacob. And there's no indication in the text that Esau was masculine and Jacob was feminine. So the problem is I think some of this transgender movement is we've come up with stereotypes in the church and without of what a real man and a real woman as a real man hunts, he eats meat, and he rides four-wheelers. And the guy who likes lead worship and enjoys art is like, I don't fit that stereotype. Maybe I'm not a man. That's what these stereotypes, the damage can do. So our culture says... Let's therefore break down all differences between male and female and make it purely a matter of your subjective preference. That's taking the pendulum too far the other direction. Does that make sense? Now, we could come back during Q&A, but let me address the third one. Is can somebody who commits suicide go to heaven? Now, you'll notice these are like three heavy questions that we're talking about this morning. Partly, I wanted you to realize that as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to address the toughest questions. If Christianity is true, it can help us make sense of these tough questions. So could somebody who takes their life go to heaven? I get asked this all the time. Usually people say, if someone takes their life, do they go to hell? And honestly, this isn't just an academic question. This is personal, isn't it? There's probably a lot of you here who have family members who have friends. So this isn't just an academic question. Here's what I think. 
I think when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been justified for your sin. The Bible speaks of us having been saved. So if you truly become a believer, repent of your sins and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, then we are forgiven and our salvation is secured. So in a sense, you could say we're forgiven for past, present, and future sins. Committing suicide is not the unforgivable sin. So I don't see biblical precedent for saying that someone who takes their own life is necessarily separated from God. But I do think it's fair to ask the question, how somebody filled with the Holy Spirit could hit such a point of despair that they end up taking their own life. Because what a lot of people don't realize is Jesus said the greatest act of love is what? To die for your brother. The greatest act of love is to lay down your own life. That's why, sorry to ruin it, you've had plenty of time. That's why Iron Man is the ultimate hero in Endgame. Because he willingly lays down his life. So if the greatest act of love is to sacrifice yourself, then what's the opposite? To take somebody else's life or to take your own. It's not unforgivable, but it is a grave, serious sin that we don't want to downplay. And we want to make sure that in our friends, in our family, if people are struggling, we are there for them, we are present with them, we love them, because we are in the middle of a mental health epidemic. So if you came to this session and heard me say this morning about suicide, and you've had that thought, promise me that you will tell somebody while you're here at camp and let them love on you and care for you and work through this. Amen? We've got 13 minutes. You can ask me anything. I'll do my best. Shoot your hand up. Just state your question quickly, and then we'll move on to the next one. Anybody who's got a question, go. Is there an unforgivable sin? Yes, there is an unforgivable sin. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is having a debate with certain religious leaders. And they say to Jesus that he is full of Beelzebub or Beelzebul, Satan. And what does Jesus say? He goes, wait a minute, a divided house cannot stand. Why would I be full of Satan and then casting out Satan? It makes no sense. But then he turns to them and he threatens them in a sense with the unforgivable sin. So if you look in the context of Mark 3, what is the unforgivable sin? I think the best explanation is when Jesus is present in the flesh to attribute the works of Jesus to Satan. I think that's what the context is. Now, if you're like, I'm not sure I'm convinced, read it for yourself. Open up to Mark chapter 3, read the verses before, read the verses after. And what they did to Jesus, who is God in human flesh, sinless, truth, they said, you are basically acting on behalf of Satan while Jesus is there in the flesh. Now, if that's true, then can we commit that unforgivable sin today? No, because Jesus is not here in the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit. Now, with that said, is there another sin that won't be forgiven? And in a sense, there is. It's rejecting Jesus and his free offer of salvation. Scripture makes very clear, separates us for eternity from God. 
So I think what's called the unforgivable sin in Mark chapter 3 is attributing the works of Jesus in the flesh to Satan. That's what the unforgivable sin is. Some would say blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But with that said, if you physically die in a state of spiritual death, separation from God, then that leads to eternal death and is also something God doesn't forgive at that stage. Does that make sense? That's such a good question. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just did this to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, about women being silent in the church. Um, here's my quick answer. There are two ways that Christians approach texts like this. One is called egalitarian, which says there's no difference in leadership in the family and the church between men and women. That passage is entirely cultural. What's called complementarian says men and women have equal value but are given different roles and the man is given a role, a kind of leadership within the family that a woman is not given. Now, that passage in 1 Corinthians is interesting because it says a woman should never speak in the church but there's other instances in the church in Acts where there's prophets and apostles that seem to speak up. So that tells me that that passage in particular is probably to the Corinthian church, which there was chaos, there was immorality. Read 1 Corinthians 5, Christians are suing each other, guys sleeping with his mother-in-law, like it's their sexual immorality. So yeah, that's, read 1 Corinthians, that's what's happening. And so I tend to think that passage is more for uh, the church at that time but with that said, I can't go into why. I actually do think Scripture teaches that there's different responsibilities to the men within the church and within the family. Now, it's not one of authority. Actually, in Ephesians 5, it calls, um, it says, women submit, or wives submit to your husbands. It doesn't say women submit to men. But then it says, men love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, which is harder? Honestly, what did Jesus do? He laid down his life for the church, his bride. So first off, if a man is really leading that way, I think it's going to be much more easy and natural for a woman to follow that leading if he's following the example of Christ. I actually think it's a harder call to say, lay down your life for your wife as I did for the church. That's the quickest I can do in a context like this. If you want good biblical teaching, a friend of mine, his name is Mike Winger. He's a popular YouTuber. He's doing an eight or nine part series on the role of women in the church. Biblical, careful, there's probably 10 or 12 hours, and he goes through every passage, and he's almost done. Mike Winger, good Bible teacher. How many of you know Mike Winger on YouTube? And he's a complementarian, but he's very careful and respectful and biblical. So that's where I would send you to explore this even further. Great question. Uh, all right, I like your enthusiasm. Be fast, go. Why can't God just eradicate sin and suffering? What makes you think that God can't eradicate sin and suffering? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. The answer is he can. 
God can eradicate sin and suffering. And guess what? Someday he will. And you know what that means? That's not sin out there. Guess what that means? That's sin in our own hearts. So we talk about evil in the world. We say, God, come back and judge. What we kind of forget is that means God's going to judge us too. So God can end sin and God can end suffering. He will. The question is, why hasn't God done that yet? And there's a passage in Galatians that says God is waiting, in a sense, for the fullness of time, giving the chance for more people to repent and turn to him. So it's actually in God's patience that he's waiting to do this. So God can, but here's something God can't do. By the way, God can't make a square circle. It's impossible. God can't make a square circle. That's not a limitation on God. That's a recognition that a square circle can't exist. It's illogical. When we say God is all-powerful, we mean God can do all things that power can do, consistent with his good moral nature. So can God make a world with beings with genuine freedom and then determine that they don't sin? Can God do that? No. If God determines that we don't sin, we're not free. If we're free, God's not determining that we don't sin. So God thought it was worth it in his infinite goodness to create a world in which we could choose to love one another we could choose to love him and do good. But if we have the option for meaningful choice to do good, what is going to come with that is the choice to do evil and the choice to sin. We have time for maybe one or two more. Let's go to this side. Yes. What's the biblical way to set a boundary? How so? Physically? Like sexually in a relationship? Theologically, you're going to have to give me a little bit. In a relationship. So I'm going to assume you mean what's the biblical way to set boundaries in a relationship? Here's the question that you need to ask. Okay? The greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. Honor God and honor others. In any physical act, you need to ask yourself, is this an act of love towards the other person or is this an act of selfishness of something that I want? I'm not telling you exactly how far to go, because you know why? That line might be different for some people. If you're 13 years old, that might be different than somebody who's 25 and a lot more spiritually mature. By the way, if I give you a line, everyone's going to go straight to that line and then justify going just a little bit further because they're different, right? The Bible doesn't give us a line. The Bible gives us principles to carry out in a relationship. I had a student come to me a number of years ago when I was teaching high school full-time, and she said, Mr. McDowell, I'm having trouble with my boyfriend. He's cute, he's sweet, but he's starting to pressure me a little bit sexually, and it makes me uncomfortable. Now, the dad in me who has a 15-year-old daughter who surfs and is blonde and is cute wanted to say, drop that scumbag who's trying to take advantage of you. But I also know that's not the most effective way to get her to do it for the right reasons. So I restrained, and I said, okay, tell me all the reasons why you like him. She told me the reasons you like him. I said, how does it make you feel when he starts pressuring you beyond boundaries? She kind of said, it makes me feel like he's not caring for me, like he's thinking about himself. I said, fair enough. I said, do you want to be with somebody who's thinking about you first 
or thinking about himself first. She said, well, I guess I want somebody who's not trying to get something from me, but is trying to give towards me and make me better. I said, okay. I said, I think you kind of have an answer to your question. She walked away and broke up with him. Did the right thing. But notice what I did. I didn't tell her to break up with him. I brought to the surface what she intuitively knew, that when he was pressuring her physically, it was because of what he wanted out of this, not what was best for her. That's all I did. Philippians 4 says, think about things that are lovely and worthy of praise and that are good. So often as students, I say, when it comes to something physically, does this make you and the other person think about something that is good and lovely? Holding hands, sure, that can. A hug, sure. Kissing the cheek, sure, in principle. French kiss, start going down further. That at least raises questions whether or not you're really doing it out of love and care for this person as opposed to what you can get out of it yourself. Hope that helps a little bit. I wrote a whole book called Chasing Love, which is, it's called Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture, exactly for students like, like you. We have time for one more question, but it's going to have to be fast. Go. I'm going to go with this guy in the middle. Go. Shh. I'm going right here. Shh. So why would a loving God condemn people to eternity in hell? Admittedly, my answer, because this is such a sensitive one, is not going to do justice to it. But I'll just say two things to get you thinking. Number one, C.S. Lewis said, there's two kinds of people in the end. Those whom say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. Now, what do you mean by this? He says God doesn't send people to hell, but God allows people to choose to be with him in eternity and to reject his free gift of salvation. And with rejecting that free gift of salvation comes separation from the Lord. Now, very quickly, last thing, why would hell be eternal? The nature of the sin we commit affects the punishment, right? If you kill a cat, as terrible as that is, that's different than killing an infant, the nature of the being we offend makes a sin graver or not. Well, rejecting the free gift of an infinite eternal God warrants an infinite eternal punishment. So much more could be said, but that's just starting a way of thinking about that issue. Hey, by the way, my name's Sean McDowell. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. And what I do is answer questions quickly like this. I'd love to help you out. Have a great afternoon.